Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled NPR and PBS, A Case for Privatization. The date, November 2020. I'm Bell Avis. And in addition to this podcast and many other podcasts that are available on our website, www.conservativehistorian.com, we would ask that you check out all of the content. We have columns, we got essays, videos, and book reviews. And also, look for our book, available on Amazon, called Conservative Historian, Collected Works, available in hardcover and Kindle editions. And now, on to our podcast. In an article in Current Magazine, reporter Julian Wiley wrote about NPR's Yamiche Alcindor. In one section, it is noted that Gregory Chadle, once a supporter of President Donald Trump, had grown disaffected. Quote, It took me three years to break that story because I had to check in with him about every couple months, every couple weeks, to get his idea of what he thought about the party, Alcindor told Current. At one point, he said he was willing to leave the party, and you're the person sticking with me, talking to me for the last three years, so I'd be happy to give this story to you. The article further adds, quote, To me, journalism is all about civil rights. When someone asks me, why did you become a journalist, I talk about Emmett Till and the fact that this 14-year-old boy was killed, unquote. Alcindor said in an episode of the Showtime series Fourth Estate, quote, and when Jet Magazine put his picture in the paper, that changed an entire civil rights movement, unquote. So Alcindor's vision of her role as a reporter is to pursue an African-American, the aforementioned Chadle, for almost three years and check in with him on a monthly or weekly basis to see how he was doing with his party. Now, Cheetah was a supporter of Trump, but only got written about after his disaffection with the 45th president. This leads us to conclude that had Cheadle never broke with Trump, she would not have written anything about him. And it also might beg the question, had she been pursuing African-Americans who no longer supported the Democratic Party? Were there any who were maybe disaffected with Barack Obama? And maybe with the 2020 presidential candidate, Joe Biden, we don't know because Elcinder never reported on those people. That second passage, the one mentioned in Jet Magazine, is about her goal. Those not aware of the horrific Till story, was it was about a 14-year-old boy who was lynched by racists for offending a white woman. Till's death was a heinous crime. But it also happened... 65 years ago, just after Brown v. Board of Education, before the Civil Rights Movement, before the election of Barack Obama, and before the election of Tim Scott by Republicans in South Carolina. Alcindor is not shy about her approach to journalism. She will seek out those stories that fit the Till Stories paradigm, which is racist suppressing black people. This is similar to countless media narratives being advanced by historian Ta-Nehisi Coates, writers such as Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times, or media personalities such as Joy Reid on MSNBC or Don Lemon on CNN. Add to this the nearly countless writers working for The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Nation, The Huffington Post, 
or Vox. And it is all a wonder that Alcindor's stories can break from the clutter. But of course, Alcindor is not like all of those hundreds of other writers, reporters, and on-air personalities. No, Alcindor is paid to do what she does by you and by me. And unlike any of those writers, NPR conveys what historian Amity Schley's writing in Forbes in 2011 deemed, quote, the colophon of authority that federal subsidy confers, unquote. Schles goes on to write, quote, if a teacher in an elementary school, public or private, sends a child home with an assignment to watch Fox News, the teacher risks being hauled into the principal's office for exposing a child to a biased source. If, however, a teacher recommends listening to NPR or watching PBS programs, the repercussions are nil, no matter that their bias may be just as sharp as that of Sean Hannity. NPR and PBS have been vetted by the federal government and are therefore rated as inoffensive. As a result of this dynamic, teachers from first grade through college have promulgated NPR's and PBS's worldview in the classroom for decades, unquote. And this is not about a single reporter, nor is it about anything new. As noted by MRC on an NPR story involving President George W. Bush, quote, on the October 17th morning edition, host Bob Edwards launches into a long news report on the flaws of Bush foreign policy, observing overall the policies of the United States are still very unpopular around the world. The Bush doctrine, a preference for unilateral military action and a disdain for multinational diplomacy is under scrutiny more than ever. The Middle East roadmap was in tatters. Iraq and Afghanistan were highly unstable, unquote. NPR may have well just suggested it was time for a different president. And just this past month, in October of 2020, 55-year veteran of NPR, Nina Totenberg, said of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett, quote, there was almost nothing she was willing to say about anything. Totenberg says, Amy Coney Barrett takes the crown for unresponsiveness, unquote. Now, contrast this sort of hard-headed reporter journalistic approach to Amy Coney Barrett with Totenberg's friendship of progressive Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Quote, but in fact, we had just many wonderful times together, especially in the last year of her life. During the lockdown, she came to our house for dinner every Saturday night, almost until the time she died. Unquote. It sounds a little bit like being a hard-headed journalist might be problematic to the person who's coming over for dinner every Saturday night. On Clarence Thomas, Totenberg is not quite so sanguine. Quote, talk to court watchers about Clarence Thomas, and the words they use to describe his views are idiosyncratic, eccentric, provocative, probing, and yes, wacky, unquote. So again, just to set the record straight, um, Amy Coney Bear provides unresponsive non-answers. Uh, Clarence Thomas is wacky, but the liberal Supreme Court justice was a very close friend. This 
is is the 55-year year reporter for NPR and the one who is most responsible for reporting on that third branch of government. And this article appeared in the March 9th, 2011 website of National Public Radio itself. Quote, Vivian Schiller, NPR CEO and president since January 2009, left that job today in the wake of the second high-profile controversy to hit the organization in the past six months. Tuesday, a video surfaced of then-NPR fundraiser Ron Schiller, no relation, slamming conservatives and questioning whether NPR needs federal funding. His comments were secretly recorded by men posing as members of a Muslim organization. They actually worked for political activist James O'Keefe, unquote. This incident also followed the firing of Juan Williams, a liberal NPR contributor who made what many deemed a racist comment about Muslims. But of Schiller, NPR said, quote, Vivian brought vision and energy to this organization. She led NPR back from the enormous economic challenges of the previous two years. She was passionately committed to NPR's mission and stations and NPR working collaboratively as a local national news network, unquote. That doesn't sound like somebody you just fired. That sounds like somebody writing a recommendation for a job. It starts to wonder, then why did you fire her in the first place? On the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's website, they begin their timeline not with the inception of the program in 1967, but with an excerpt from a speech provided in 1961. Quote, in his first speech as FCC chairman, Newton Minow calls commercial television a vast wasteland and calls for programming in the public interest. This landmark speech is considered one of the most influential American speeches of all time, unquote. As with much of public broadcasting, humility seems to be in short supply. The suggestion that this comment or these speech ranks with the Gettysburg Address or Kennedy's Bear Any Burden is the type of elitist belief in their program's infallibility. One can almost hear the sniffing about religious clingers or deplorables in such a statement. And again, that speech was drawn directly from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting's website, but note the timing of it. That speech by Neil Minow was given in 1961. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting was instituted in 1967. So, TV was a vast wasteland, but not anymore. PBS is here to save us all. In instituting the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, President Lyndon B. Johnson made these remarks in 1967. Quote, It announces to the world that our nation wants more than just material wealth. Our nation wants more than a chicken in every pot. We in America have an appetite for excellence too. While we work every day to produce new goods and to create new wealth, we want most of all to enrich man's spirit. That is the purpose of this act. It will give a wider and, I think, stronger voice to educational radio and television by providing new funds for broadcast facilities. It will also launch a major study of television's use in the nation's classrooms and its potential use throughout the world. Finally, and most important, it builds a new institution, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, unquote. 
Now, most can agree on what makes a good road. Most can agree on effective policing or even a successful military. But what exactly is spirit enrichment? This was not the realm of physical needs, but preferably psychological ones. And also, note the connection to education, an argument also made by Schles. By providing ready-made content and lesson plans for the classroom, not only does NPR and PBS make teachers' lives easier, it also provides an entree for Alcinder, Totenberg, and denizens of progressivism to make further inroads into the classroom. All the better to work on all those young, malleable minds. Johnson began his speech by citing the inception of the telegraph machine. But this confuses a tool of information dissemination and the information itself. And therein is the problem. Quote, This corporation will assist stations and producers who aim for the best in broadcasting good music, in broadcasting exciting plays, and in broadcasting reports on the whole fascinating range of human activity. It will will try to prove that what educates can also be exciting. It will get part of its support from our government, but it will be carefully guarded from government or from party control. Why, it will be free, and it will be independent, and it will belong to all of our people, unquote. Ironically, Johnson would be the purveyor of good music and high culture in this regard. Congressman Richard Bowling said of Johnson, quote, I wouldn't say Johnson was vulgar, he was barnyard, unquote. This is hardly the man who would attend Mozart concerts or, th- or sit through a rendition of pastoral comedy such as As You Like It. But that's the definition of what's supposed to be good music or high culture. But more than the definition of what some would term good, does anyone looking at the history of NPR with Elcinder and Totenberg and think that NPR belongs to, quote, all of our people, unquote? In doing research for this piece, when I made the attempt to Google search anything related to the following phraseology, quote, PBS or NPR help sell Obamacare or PBS or NPR helps push Obamacare or any type of article looking for some sort of bias on the part of those two organizations, my search menu was almost entirely about stories about Obamacare itself written by said subsidiaries. Now, either NPR or PBS are highly attuned to working the search engine or Google does not wish to disparage these governmental entities. Now, I did manage to find this article, which is representative of dozens of articles, from 2013, in which NPR writes about Floridians not signing up for the law. Quote, Florida has the second highest rate of uninsured residents in the U.S., yet it seems many who could benefit the most aren't interested in listening. Unquote. Nothing in that article states why somebody might not wish to sign up for it. The article basically takes the position that the ACA is an absolute good and that if you are not signing up for it, it must be because you have not heard about the benefits of it or are getting the wrong information from the wrong sources. In my search, through dozens of NPR and PBS-related articles, all took the same tack. The costs, the removal of $5 million from their private insurance, 
the fiction of you will keep your doctor are all scrubbed. Whether intentionally or not, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting picked a side in one of the most contentious debates of our age. The elimination of public broadcasting is not a budgetary issue, unfortunately. The federal outlays for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, NPR's and PBS's parent, is about $500 million. Now, that is a considerable amount of money to standard organizations and an incredible, incredible fortune to an individual. But it is a rounding error on the rounding error for a federal budget of over $3 trillion. In terms of percentage, the CBP budget is around two-tenths of 1% of the entire federal budget. We will not achieve fiscal austerity or eliminate the deficit by getting rid of this organization. Additionally, CBP receives donations from several outside organizations. No, instead, this is about the fact that taxpayers are shelling out dollars to support an organization that in providing news, commentary, and opinion puts the government into the position of being information determinant. And to engage in a little whataboutism, suppose Elcinder leaves NPR to take a more appropriate role as an opinion provider at Vox or The Nation or Huffington Post or The New York Times or Washington Post. I think you get my idea. What if she were replaced instead like somebody like, oh, I don't know, Jim Garrity from National Review or Matt Vespa from townhall.com or Laura Ingram from Fox News? But that sort of kind of did happen once. Nobody's conservative Juan Williams was fired from NPR for saying things outside the orthodoxy of NPR's worldview. It was a comment he made about being wary of Muslims on a flight that did the trick. But one of the pieces that made that call easier were comments far less famous. In those comments, Williams compared Michelle Obama to Stokely Carmichael. Now, this was seen unfavorable because the actual quotes that Williams used from Carmichael were disparaging of the United States. The problem is that Williams' actual words were spot on. Like Carmichael, Michelle Obama had, and still has, a jaded view of the nation. This would be the same nation that lifted her husband to the leader of the nation and of the free world. If Williams is not welcome, then the chances of a true conservative, such as those I've named above, having a similar position are all but impossible. Alcindor is very public about using her platform to talk about the civil rights movement. Would NPR be open to a reporter talking about the, I don't know, inequities in the public school system or the rights of the unborn? Not as a storyline, but as a continuous narrative, a reason for reporting in the first place? Try to imagine NPR hiring that person who said that they had seen what Kermit Gosnell had done with uh, unborn fetuses, and that motivated them so much that they wanted to become a journalist and NPR hired them. That just simply wouldn't happen. What if a conservative pursued a Bernie Sanders supporter for three years and only wrote about him when said Bernie bro became a mega supporter? Again, will not happen. If NPR cannot manage to provide a reporter represents nearly half the nation's views, then are they a public institution? No, and they should be made private. Now let me be absolutely clear on this. 
I do not want a conservative NPR or PBS any more than I want the one we have now. The thought that nearly one half of the country would have to pay for Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or even the knuckleheads involved with the Lincoln Project seems a little problematic. I have liberal friends. I know a lot of people who voted for Barack Obama and who voted for Joe Biden. Donald Trump was not their choice. And yet, I will now make them pay for an organization that would then only favor Trumpism, only favor Republican viewpoints, an organization that would then be talking nothing about tax cuts and deregulation. No, the government should not be involved in any of this. Now, there was a time such as years ago when Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers' Inceptions, for example, when there were but three significant channels, and roughly two minor ones, and PBS. When the Corporation for Public Broadcasting may have provided value, it would have been some incremental value, but value nonetheless. But in an era of cable TV and at least six major, at last count, streaming services, American households are no longer at the mercy of the broadcasters. Any parent who wishes can tailor make a regimen of video watching that can be as learned or as not as they choose. Sesame Street is so vital. Create the programs and then sell them to interested parents. But why does that retired steelworker with no kids have to pay for this? The argument would be that the steelworker benefits from an educated child. But the education itself is not determined by the steelworker. Instead, it is determined by the same people who hired Al Cinder and celebrate Totenberg. Now, there is, is the question of cost. But wait a minute. Uh, as Johnson wrongly said, isn't public broadcasting free? No, it's not free. $500 million from the government has to go to subsidize it. Nothing, and I repeat, nothing the government does is free. No matter what politicians tell you, there is no such thing as free education, there's no such thing as free healthcare, and there is no such thing as free public broadcasting. Somebody has to pay. But let's take a look at who actually utilizes public broadcasting, who is consuming the content. According to a 2012 study by Pew Research, NPR listeners have higher incomes than average Americans. 60% earn over 75000 Remember that the median average in the U.S. is 59000 The Pew survey also found that the NPR audience tends Democratic, 17% Republican versus 43% Democrat. Under an article headed, The NPR Audience Seeks Out Cultural Experiences, the following facts are shared. Quote, NPR audiences are 136% more likely to have attended an art gallery or show in the past year, and 106% more likely to have visited a museum in the past year. Now, I would support these sentiments as I love art galleries and have written extensively about trips to museums worldwide. But it also shows an apparent dichotomy between NPR listeners and the bulk of the nation. And I would also add that museums and art galleries have, and I love this term, a suggested donation. If you want to pay less, they suggest you spend a little bit more. 
I have zero problem of paying for those suggested donations. I have zero problem, as I have in the past, especially as concerns the Illinois Field Museum and the Illinois Shed Aquarium. I have been an active donor to both of those pieces. But again, that is my choice to support those cultural pieces. If NPR and PBS is so vital, then certain people will cover the $500 million cost. The New York Times, just one of the several liberal media outlets that I mentioned above, has an annual operating budget of $3 billion and boasts a subscriber base of $7 million. It stands to reason that some of these folks would be well positioned to switch over or add to and pay for the likes of El Cinder. So again, the argument isn't just about the bias in NPR, which does drive me a little crazy, but it is rather about the government actively being a part of the dissemination of information to the American public. Now, there are, of course, services that the federal government provides that not all Americans take advantage. Over 3 million people, or roughly about 1% of the population, visits Yellowstone National Park each year. The difference is that it is nearly impossible to replicate the content that one receives from going to Yellowstone. Additionally, the park is not a vehicle for a specific ideology, nor creates the type of divisiveness that politics will naturally engender. There is right now a big call in November of 2020 for unity. We need to unify. We need to come together as a nation. The problem is, is, is that that is never going to happen in politics. Now, there can be unity over appreciating the beauty of Yellowstone Park, but there will not be unity over whether the benefits of the ACA accrue or not. Now, if anything, Yellowstone brings an appreciation of the nation, a greater sense of unity than evident without the park. If you're talking about unity, you should talk about Yellowstone. If you're talking about disunity, then you are starting to talk about NPR. As a conservative, I am not about the elimination of government. I am about the limitation thereof. There are certain services that the government needs to be responsible for. One of those would be physical safety, represented at the local level by the police, represented at the national level by the army. The government should not and does not need to be in the business of information dissemination. And one of the things that has been illustrated within the production of this piece is that when government is involved in the dissemination of certain kinds of information, that that information will definitely take on a biases. Now, there is certain information that comes from the government that is as recognized as nonpartisan. For example, the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases information about the American workforce, but that information is almost entirely fact-based. Contrast an unemployment report or a full employment report with Nina Totenberg having dinner with a Supreme Court justice of one party, of one ideology every week, and then using her substantial platform of government funding to disparage Supreme Court justices from the other side. Therein lies the difference, and therein lies the reason why we should privatize NPR and PBS. Thank you for listening. This is Bell Alice. 